Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Deval Patrick is the accomplished two-term former governor of Massachusetts, and he's running for the Democratic nomination for president. His is an uphill fight made tougher by the fact that African-American voters are not giving the only black candidate in the race now the boost in support he needs to have a fighting chance. But Patrick isn't giving up. Well, for reasons I said earlier, you know, I have uh, others have plans. I have results. Hear what they are right now. Governor Patrick, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, thank you for having me. All right. So when we were riding up in the elevator, you said to me, what was that that your aunt said? (laughs) Why a black man can't win? So let's go. Let's go right there. We're talking about my aunt Gloria. Come on, man. That that part was off the record. (laughs) (laughs) No, I read your column. Mm -hmm. I read your column. And I, uh, um, you know, I was telling you uh, on the way up about uh, a caller to a uh, uh, radio call in show I was on in South Carolina a few weeks ago. And he sounded, and I'm, you know, I'm aware of my presumptions and saying he mm-hmm. sounded like a, uh, like a black man. And he said uh, to the effect, Governor Patrick, he said, you know, you are exactly right. You are just right uh, for the country. He said, but I just don't think um, that uh, America is going to elect another black president. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, say more. And he said, well, you see that uh, Trump uh, is the reaction to Obama. And uh, and, uh, you know, we're just not we're just not ready for uh, for black president. We thought we were when we elected Obama, but we're not uh, today. And, you know, I I have not uh, I had not heard that again um, uh, until I saw your uh, until I saw your article. And I know you said that's not exactly what you were uh, right. What the article was about. Well, I mean, what we're talking about is my my aunt Gloria, who lives in North Carolina, and at the family barbecue when we were, I, I polled my my relatives in 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 the uh, in the in the yard at the barbecue, and she said the way this the the system the way it is right now, things being so racist that it's going to take an old white man to beat an old white man, old school against old school. And that was her argument mm. for why Joe Biden, she thought, would be the person who should be the nominee and should be someone who could beat President Trump. Mm-hmm. And the Washington Post did a poll with Ipsos where Vice President Biden far and away is um, leading among black voters. And and then this was a poll only of black voters. Mm -hmm. So this sort of reinforced Mm -hmm. Aunt Gloria's viewpoint. Your standing in that poll was less than 0.5%. Do you think, I mean, given the, 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 call from the South Carolina Well, I thought you were going to say that, given on Gloria <laughs> and the family. Well, both poll. of them. Well, look, both of them. Look, I think I, in my experience um, as a candidate and watching uh, candidates and, and politics is to be deeply skeptical of polls, um, really right up until the eve of the election. Mm-hmm. The poll that matters, to say the obvious, is, uh, is, uh, is the vote cast by, uh, by voters. You know, polls told us that the outcome of 2016's uh, presidential Mm-hmm. Election was going to be very different than uh, than the it reality. was, and it's not that all polls are bad. It's just I think most of what we're getting today are polls about name recognition, and in that respect, I have a lot of work to do um, nationally, and we're getting that work done. But I think the the um, the part of the of the column, Jonathan, if I may say so, as a mm-hmm. um, uh, 
respectful of your incredible work. Oh, give me the critique. No, Come no, on. it just yeah. it made me sad mm-hmm. because I think what is happening um, in many ways, and this goes beyond race, but I also see it uh, among uh, uh, black voters I meet, is that we are so focused on the very, very important work of defeating the incumbent uh, president that we are all of us looking for permission to vote our aspirations. So we keep being, uh, we keep sort of talking ourselves or in some cases being talked into what is the smart outcome. And candidates do it as well. Um, columnists do it, uh, pollsters do it, pundits and, uh, and so forth. And I think, you know, voters have a singular power and that is to make up their own minds about uh, who best represents their aspirations for uh, uh, for themselves, their families, their communities, and uh, and the nation. And ceding that to uh, to people who are you know hard at work trying to sort of outsmart or forecast outsmart the electorate or forecast the election before uh, people have really begun to uh, focus in on it. I think is a uh, is a worry, not just for me as a candidate, but for me as a citizen. Well, I'm going to answer this question that I have uh, ha- have here. You may have already answered it, but I'm going to ask it because it's sort of are black voters being pragmatic or too cautious? It's not just black voters. Um, and and uh, when I say uh, when you when I hear pragmatic, uh, I am hearing um that they are buying a narrative about likelihood of success from people whose success at predicting likelihood (laughs) is mixed Mm -hmm. at best. Um, Folks aren't going to reason their way uh, through polls and punditry to the right answer. They're going to eventually pay attention to who's making the best case and who's likely to make uh, the strongest case against... uh, against President Trump. And the fact that we know Joe Biden, we're familiar um, uh, with, uh, with Joe Biden, who, by the way, is a wonderful person, um, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, he's the most effective at, uh, 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 at standing up to, uh, uh, to President Trump. And I'll just say, if I may, on my own behalf, um, and I say this mindful that there are, it's a big, talented field with a bunch of my friends in it. No one else in this race has the range of life and leadership experience that I do, domestic and abroad, private sector and public sector. Mm -hmm. And when you consider the range of challenges that face people, black and brown and white and everybody else, how much like uh, the experience of growing up on the south side of Chicago um, with other black people and uh, that I had and neighborhoods like it, how much like uh, that experience uh, is, uh, is experienced today in uh, in the suburbs, in small towns, among uh, white working class um, uh, people, you better be willing and able uh, to be a bridge to change that uh, that lasts. Well, speaking of, of your career, I'll be a, a little more specific. You were the two-term governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yes. You were the former U.S. Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division during the Clinton administration. Correct. Correct. Um, and in private sector, Bain Capital and, and, and other places. Why don't you think, given this range of experience... And having been in the race now, is it been two months yet? I think so. Yeah, two months. It feels like two days. <laughs> <laughs> that you haven't that you haven't been able to break through. 
Well, we, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Um, we are focusing uh, not on national polls or becoming famous. I'm focusing on building uh, in the early states. We have uh, with a real emphasis on uh, New Hampshire mm-hmm. and South Carolina for reasons we can talk about. But we have organizations in each places, teams growing very fast in those two primary states. We're up on the air uh, with um, TV commercials and digital commercials in uh, uh, in the early states, and that is uh, that is terrific. You know, in the I think in the days before I came here um, to your offices in D.C., we were in New Hampshire. I want to say three days and did nine or ten events in those mm. uh, days. Had four um front page uh, uh uh articles in the in local newspapers big headlines and so on bigger and bigger crowds and they're very engaged so for me it's not about you know um uh, uh just showing up and having rallies it's really trying to listen to people i have a whole bunch of very strong ideas of my own but i campaign by asking people to make it personal and increasingly they are uh, they are doing so so again i have no illusions about the uh about uh how heavy the lift, um, and uh, had life not intervened, I would have come in more than a year ago, and mm-hmm. I think you know that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I came in when I did because it felt like um, this great talented field, good as it is and familiar to me as many of them are, um, might miss the moment. So you you mentioned how you didn't get into the race sooner, and that, if I remember correctly, is because of health challenges that your your wife was Correct. having. Correct. Yes, we actually had a date. You know, we had a we had a launch date um, in uh, in November or early December, I guess it was of uh, of 2018, and about uh, and a rollout strategy. Uh, it would have dazzled you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, about two three weeks before, my wife was diagnosed with uterine cancer, mm. and uh, we are you know she has great health care in Massachusetts and um, and got great care and um, uh, and we celebrated 35 years of marriage in May, and she's cancer free. Praise God. Congratulations. Yeah. On um, both counts. Yes. Uh, and we, uh, you know, we continue to watch the, the race and, can, and talk to my friends. And, um, and I continue to feel like we might, we might, uh, we not just as Democrats, but we as Americans might miss this moment. And I can talk about what I, what I mean by that. If you like. No, no, please, please do. Because I'm sitting here wondering, wh- I mean, you did, you mentioned you got into this race late. Later. Late, later. But, I mean, two months two months ago, and folks are going to be voting in Iowa and New Hampshire in less than, less than a month from now. So but, talk more. Yeah, well, consider, you know, I do get this question a lot, and I suppose um, uh, um, predictably. Um, but remember, you know, we've had candidates who have been in for months and months and years and years in some cases and spent millions of dollars, and they haven't locked it down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Senator Booker left, Secretary Castro, Senator Harris as well, uh, Marion Marion Williamson. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the uh, the field is very unsettled, and they have raised um, just those four raised and spent a tremendous amount of money uh, already. We have uh, we have the so called front runners, and we call them front runners because of the debate criteria, and that's a whole other issue, um, which has become a, a sort of an um, you know an end in itself. Um, but uh, they have also spent millions of dollars and months of time and not locked it down. So um, I think the question, I mean, I understand the question, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, the, the question is really, it kind of misses the point of what's happening, uh, which is that voters have not made up their minds. They are just beginning to focus, uh, particularly in the early states. In some respects, they're tired of having candidates having come at them 
uh, for so long and so hard. You are too, Jonathan, by the way, and you eat and drink this stuff for a living. Well, I'm not tired of I'm not tired of the campaign. There's another thing I'm tired of. Yeah. <laughs> but go on. Uh oh. Go no, ahead. <laughs> no, President Trump and the administration. No, it's well, like talk oh, about drinking right. from a fire hose. Yes, right, Good Lord. Right, I know. But go, every, but go on. Every single day it feels uh, like it can't get worse, and it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, it's embarrassing. It's dismaying. I'm talking now about President Trump mm-hmm. and the administration and their choices and behavior. It's dangerous. Uh, and I think we can all agree uh, or mostly agree that um, four more years – of Donald Trump and this nation will be unrecognizable mm-hmm. um, as a uh, as a modern democracy. Uh, but I think that we have to offer the American people more than removing him. That is important, and it's a threshold matter. But if the uh, if the if we don't offer more, then it leaves people to think, okay, we're just going to go back to doing what we used to do, and what we used to do isn't good enough for right now. So so then so why you? Well, for reasons I said earlier, you know, I have uh, others have plans. I have results. Folks are talking about health care. We should be talking about health care. Ninety nine percent of the people in Massachusetts have health care today. Medicare Uh, for all. Should we? I mean, the conversation is Medicare for all. Are you there? No. Um, And uh, not because uh, in concept it isn't attractive, but because I think there is an advantage in having the competitive tension between a private insurance industry, uh, which is you know, you better believe is going to be trying to come up with a uh, uh, with an affordable option to the folks who are moving to a public option, which is uh, free or affordable. Um, and if that public option, for example, were Medicare, which is fine by me, um, the competitive uh, uh, tension would also cause uh, CMS, uh, which manages uh, Medicare, to have to step up its game. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, if you are if you are eligible for Medicare today. And you are able to, most people will buy a supplemental policy on top of Medicare because Medicare doesn't get the job done. So I think our next step is a public option. Um, we would have had, as you know, and uh, and maybe your listeners do too, we would have had a public option from the start. Mm-hmm. It was part of the uh, original proposal. And I think I'm right in remembering that it failed by one vote, that part of it, by one vote. And that vote, I think, was a Democratic senator. Mm-hmm. So I, I cut you off at health uh, at healthcare. You said you are actually someone who's gotten results. You talk well, about healthcare. So what else? One. We we are we have a national model for addressing climate change in Massachusetts. We joined the regional uh, regional greenhouse gas initiative, which is a regional cap and trade uh, system. We used all of those proceeds to invest in energy efficiency, which is one of the reasons why Massachusetts uh, uh, has been ranked number one in energy efficiency. We closed the remaining coal-fired uh, plants because we were generating plenty um, in alternative clean uh, uh, sources. And uh, we developed a statewide uh, response and recovery uh, plan and invested um, behind that in related infrastructure. And we had a booming uh, clean tech job sector um, demonstrating that uh, you, you know one of these false choices that we get handed is that you, you know, you're going to wreck the economy in order to have a uh, a green uh, future. Well, we've demonstrated that that's not uh, that's not so. So, um, you know, obviously, as president, I would uh, I would join uh, rejoin the Paris Accords. We need to take that up, uh, take those goals up a notch. Um, we uh, we frankly ought to have a global um, uh, independent uh, uh, oversight organization that holds to account uh, the uh, commitments that nations are. Uh, are making, and I think we should uh, we should 
uh, we should commit to a flourishing, as part of a flourishing innovation uh, economy, um, a, f- uh, a flourishing, uh, the flourishing of the development of clean and alternative uh, energy, solar, wind, but also other uh, technologies that are in their uh, in their early days. Um, so those you, are just two examples. I'm saying of of uh, sure of issues that we are rightly talking about in the public square today, but where others have plans, I have results. Now, one of the arguments, if the party is talking about Medicare for all, another discussion that's happening in the party is one that has to do with wealth and income inequality and the pernicious power of of money within mm-hmm. American politics mm-hmm. and, and democratic politics. There, at one point, candidates were being asked, do you believe in capitalism? And mm-hmm. whether they answered the question correctly or not could generate lots of lots of negative uh, and activity, activity yeah. and unnecessary, unnecessary stories. Mm-hmm. But there is a conversation happening within the party about wealth. Uh, and what it's doing to our country. You're someone who's been in the private sector mm-hmm. during the 2012 campaign. Your former company, Bain Capital, was at the center of you know President Obama's I know, beating I, it like a beanbag. I co-chaired that uh, that campaign, <laughs> and he beat up on your employer. Well, uh, maybe there were it wasn't then, but yes, you're right. Right. Since, right. And, and so, what would you say, or what do you say to Democrats? who are concerned about the pernicious power of of money in American politics and that you and your past in the business in the business world or the billionaires who are running that um, what you represent or what you represented is not where the country should be going. Well, first of all, I think uh, for the folks who have criticisms of uh, of capitalism, a lot of them are right. I mean, capitalism in America has a lot to answer for. We have practiced it uh, here uh, for at least the last 40 years in a way that was unnecessarily focused on the short term. Uh, sometimes I think at the uh, uh, without due regard to the long-term impact of that behavior. Um, one of the reasons, in fact, the central reason why I started uh, the business I did at Bain Capital was to invest in businesses um, where we could demonstrate a, uh, a measurable social or environmental impact, a positive one, um, and to demonstrate at scale that trading return for, for uh, impact was a, uh, was a false choice all along. And as we did that um, and, uh, and built that team and built that thesis, I think we raised some really, really important questions about investing generally. And that is a good thing. Uh, there are a lot of folks um, in business leadership, the business roundtable statement of about a year ago, I want to say Larry Fink, at uh, BlackRock, I think I'm remembering this, the large uh, uh, public equities um, uh, uh, firm, have been making this point that we need to rethink what long-term value is. And if we are um, serious about uh, sustainable capitalism, then we got to be thinking not just about shareholder value in the short term, um, but also about stakeholder value the impact on employees, on the community, on the planet. That's where we want capitalism uh, uh, to be. Um, and there's a lot, you know, frankly, most of us work in the private sector. Most, uh, uh, most people uh, house, feed themselves, amuse themselves uh, from the private sector. So we ought to want um, that sector of our lives to be uh, both prosperous and, uh, and just, uh, just as we want uh, our, um, 
uh, our uh, government to be uh, to be fair and balanced. And I would say um, also that um, you know the the uh, frankly having an understanding of how business decisions are made, where uh, and what motivates them, um, is a value um, I found as governor because sometimes when the business community, so-called, was in, represented by their uh, by their leadership, and they were talking BS. You could call it what it was, mm-hmm. because you knew better. Um, and some of the other uh, uh, some of the other folks uh, in government uh, who were also at those tables did um, did not. So, and, and on the point about look, I, I've I've I don't support the wealth tax because I think the problem isn't wealth; it's greed. It's the it's the sort of hoarding of all of the. Uh, all of the benefits in a, in a, among a few on the uh, on the supposition that you know it'll trickle down to everyone else. Remember that term? Oh yeah. Um, well, look around. This is uh, we got we got what we have because we've been on this path of trickle down ac- economics since since 1980, and uh, and it was foreseeable that we would uh, that we would be here. Um, it has been put off for a long time or covered over, and now it's being faced, and that is critically. Uh, critically important. Do you ever, given everything that you just said about, um, you know, having been in the business world and your BS detector on on, on business, do you have a problem with the billionaires running for president? Don't, don't, don't bring me into that. Um, Anybody um, who wants to compete should compete. I have a problem with, um, with uh, money in politics, uh, the concentration of money in politics. In fact, our democracy agenda we put out uh, just last uh, last week is speaks to that the various ways in which over time Jonathan we've been using we've been treating our democracy as if it would tolerate limitless abuse without breaking you know the hyperpartisan gerrymandering the amount of money much of it dark uh, in our politics uh, uh, today and much of it negative frankly mm-hmm. um, the uh, the voter suppression the purging and the and how hard we make it to uh, to register and how intentional all of this is as a part of a strategy to uh, to produce uh, to make sure our democracy produces less and less democratic outcomes, and we need to go at that. That's the very first uh, agenda item we rolled out because it's the very first thing I would put before uh, uh, our Congress and the American people. You said er- earlier that you've been out there campaigning mostly New Hampshire and and South Carolina. Which let, tell me if I'm wrong, New Hampshire because it's the state next door. You were governor <laughs> in Massachusetts and South Carolina because 60 percent of the Democratic electorate in South Carolina is African American. That's not the only reason, um, but uh, that's part of the uh, that's part of the equation. But that's not it's not as simple as that. The oh. um, the the primaries are different. Um, I, I remember the first right after we announced. Um, we went from New Hampshire to L.A. to Nevada to Iowa to South Carolina, and then did it all over mm-hmm. again. And uh, when I was in uh, when I was in Iowa, I went to a meeting of the um, of the Polk County Democrats, regular meeting of the Polk County Democrats. So this is the uh, county that in- encompasses Des Moines. And they said I could come to the last half hour of the meeting and introduce myself. <clears throat> and I came in. There were a few hundred people in the room. They let all the press in. I just started uh, <laughs> so running. You got pushed into the deep exactly, end. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and an hour and a half later of this, you know, half an hour allotment, nobody had moved. And I spoke for 20 minutes or so. I introduced myself. And then we just had conversation. And there were people all over the spectrum there. 
um, but nobody moved. They were totally engaged. And there was a guy sitting right in front who had on a blue sweatshirt and a kind of a poker face. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, witty or serious as I tried to be, I couldn't get anything out of it. <laughs> Nothing. And uh, we we wrapped up. I got a standing ovation. The, um, he was the first one to come up uh, to me. He took my hand and he leaned in close and he said, I've been waiting for you. I'm going to do anything I can to make you president of the United States. It's wide open out there. It's wide open. Um, primaries are different because uh, caucuses, particularly in, in, in Iowa, you know, if you think of um, the primary in New Hampshire as being intimate, Iowa is granular. You know, hmm. you, 99 counties, you got to have somebody in every one of those school gyms on caucus day, and they have to horse trade and be prepared for who's movable and all that stuff as you get them to go from one corner uh, to the other. It's a very different kind of animal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, New Hampshire is, um, as a as a way of electing, is more familiar uh, to me, and so is South Carolina. But in both cases, we're talking to everybody. Right. And and, and I brought up those those two states and in your travels to all of the states, because you said you're listening to people. You know, when Hillary Clinton was running in 2016, it was in her conversations, particularly, I think, in New Hampshire is when she learned about the opioid crisis yes. and told her staff something's going on, find out about it. And then suddenly we're all talking about it. Yes. What are you hearing on the campaign trail that we're not talking about on a national level yet? Well, I will tell you that the cheery economic indicators, the things that um, uh, I keep reading and hearing about will make it harder to beat um, uh, President Trump. They just don't tell the whole story. You know, um, unemployment is low as long as, you, as long as you count both or all three of the minimum wage jobs folks have to uh, survive. Uh, inflation is, lo- is low as long as you don't count the cost of uh, housing, education, and health care, right? The very things that enable people to stabilize themselves and move onto a path of economic mobility. So the, the economic anxiety that uh, I remember um, from growing up on welfare on the south side of Chicago and the anger that comes from feeling like those issues are issues at election cycle and not in between, that's now what I see in all kinds of communities, uh, people of all kinds of backgrounds, in the suburbs where people are using their credit cards in the food pantry to make ends, uh, ends meet and are very quiet about it. But the food pantries in suburbs are oversubscribed today. Everywhere, everywhere. And so in a way, um, it presents both a broader challenge but an enormous opportunity um, to unite us through the solutions. Because more and more, I think, people are, are looking to, uh, uh, to government not to solve every problem in their lives but to help them help themselves. So in the little bit of time that we have left, I want to ask you some what might seem like silly question. So I didn't know this until I watched your the interview you did on C-SPAN that you wanted to be an architect. Yes, I still want to be an you architect. St- right, you, yeah. st- you still want to be an yeah. architect. I'm going to do that in eight to 10 years. <laughs> I guess, in eight to 10 years after your second term. Um, who's your favorite architect? Ooh, that's tough. So I love Robert Stern's work, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the stone and shingle style. Um, does that mean anything stone, to you? Stone, stone and shingle. It's a it's an American style, really, mm-hmm. um, from the um, Mid Atlantic uh, region. When when uh, when Diane and I um, had the great good fortune of being able to build a house of our own, um, we borrowed a lot 
Um, I was going to say you hired uh, Stern. Stern. No, gracious. Oh, God, no. No, no, no. Wow. But, but uh, he, he is an example uh-huh. of uh, and a more modern uh, example. Yeah, he's no. <laughs> but, you know, I love I just love I love uh, the design of space, you know, um, uh, Softy's work um, in the uh, he hasn't done very much in the U.S. But if you've been to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I have not. It's a stunning. It's a, it's an absolutely stunning mm-hmm. um, uh, building, and he's uh, he designed that or the uh, or the um, oh god the Rubin Center in mm-hmm. uh, in Tel Aviv. He's done uh, housing in um, in Canada. Um, he's he has a, he's doing a lot of work in in China these days. Very, uh, it's it's more modern than I would want to live in, I suppose. <laughs> but it's it a lot of glass. But but it's very. Um, it's very sensitive to the surroundings, very emotive. Mm. Um, and I think you, what I have found, and maybe I'm super uh, self-conscious about this, having shared a bedroom with my mother and my sister when I was growing up in a set of bunk beds and a window that looked out on an air shaft, that we are affected by the space around mm-hmm. us. And, uh, and having that space respond to, uh, to needs and, uh, and make you feel like you're in the right space to do what you're supposed to do. Um, is not all a thing of chance. Some of it is about design. Um, so we had this joke just a second ago that you would become an architect at the when you finished your second term as president of the United States. If that were to come to pass, you would have a vice president. Who would you want to serve as your vice president? Ooh, nice try. Um, I have some very, I have some really. Uh, oh, you have some ideas. You've I got do. Names. I do have some ideas. Come on, um, but I, I think it's. Give me pre- one. I think it's. Pre- <laughs> you're very charming. An initial. You're very charming. Um, I think it's presumptuous to be public about that. I've got a lot of work to do to become the nominee, uh, and uh, and you'll hear more about it as I become the nominee. But um, um, there are. Aren't we fortunate? I look at this field and. Uh, and I look beyond this field, and we have some just marvelous talent uh, in the country and, and in the party who are stepping up. And because I believe in a democracy, we get or ought to get the government we deserve, um, and I think we deserve better government. I'm incredibly, um, I'm incredibly uh, encouraged by uh, the quality of the folks who are offering themselves. If you are not the nominee, the 20, 2020 nominee for president in the Democratic Party, would you be vice president? You know, people keep asking me not to say no. <laughs> you know, they, I, they mean, keep... I asked Stacey Abrams at the Kennedy Library. Yeah. Um, Isn't she la- fabulous? She's, fan- she's fantastic. Yeah. And I asked her, you know, would you consider it? And she said flat out, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I keep I used to say no all the time. And, and uh, uh, because, you know, I ran for governor. The first time I ran for anything because I wanted to be the one to set the agenda, um, having worked for uh, for people whose uh, agenda was less ambitious than the moment I thought called for in the public and the private sector. So I thought, geez, I want to be the one who's accountable for that agenda. I want to reach um, beyond our uh, beyond our grasp. And I think that's one of the reasons why even coming out of recession, Massachusetts is uh, number one in student achievement, number one in health care. Uh, in the country, number one in entrepreneurial activity and energy efficiency in uh, in veteran services and much more um, with a 25-year employment high. Um, you know, I think we should, and we are, as Americans, predisposed to be ambitious. And so I want to be the one setting that agenda, which is why it's been hard for me to say uh, 
to say yes to to vice president. But you know, one wants to be um, a servant leader, and sometimes that means um, there are other ways to serve. I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> the Bob Patrick, you, you leave me be. <laughs> <laughs> you were the the first African American governor of Massachusetts, correct? And the sec only the the second elected in the United States in the United States, correct? Ever, correct? Okay, just want to put that out there, Governor Deval Patrick of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, former U.S. Attorney, Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division, candidate for President, a Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Thank you very much for being on the. Thank podcast. you very much for having me, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.